headed to King's Kids. I understand that uh, we have a whole lot of eggs to put candy into. And I believe uh, uh, Brooke is wanting to do that on Wednesday. So if anyone is available about 10 o'clock Wednesday morning, and you'd like to put candy into eggs, no eating, <laughs> put candy into eggs. <laughs> I just lost everybody. Uh, maybe one piece. Um, you join Brooke here about 10 o'clock on Wednesday, and she will appreciate your help very, very much, I'm sure. All right, we are uh, in Acts and also 1 Corinthians 15, but let's look at Acts for just a moment. We're thinking about the centrality of the resurrection, the centrality of the resurrection. In the book of Acts, you know, uh, Jesus meets with his disciples in chapter 1. He gives them uh, some instructions, tells them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And tells them to wait until the day of Pentecost comes. And uh, that great day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church. And in a very demonstrable way, God brought his Holy Spirit to the church and uh, great power and authority. Peter spoke on that day. Chapter 2 is the sum of Peter's message. Chapter 3, the next day or a couple days later, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter and John are going up to the temple and they're going to meet with some folks there and talk about Jesus. Apparently, this is something that was done quite frequently. Uh, during the course of that uh, discussion there in the temple, we come across to verse 33 of chapter 4. Well, they, I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself there. In chapter 3, Jesus, uh, Peter preaches to the crowds, and uh, the religious leaders don't like it. So in chapter 4, we find that Peter and James and John, people of uh, early church there or before the Sanhedrin, they're getting instructions, don't you do that anymore. You be quiet. Don't you preach in this name of Jesus. Well, they didn't really um, agree with that, and so they disobeyed. And verse 32, it says, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the focal point of those early messages. That God had raised Jesus from the dead. Now, if you think about it for a minute, that's a pretty bold claim to make right there in the city of Jerusalem, right there in the temple, right in front of the very people that were instrumental in putting Jesus on the cross and seeing him crucified. Peter in his sermon even mentions on several occasions, as you read through the book of Acts, he'll say, you know, this Jesus whom you crucified God has raised up. The resurrection was the central theme of the early preaching 
of the gospel. And it should be the central theme of our preaching and of our living each day. We shouldn't be going around living like God is dead. We should, in fact, be going around living as though God is alive and that the resurrection is a reality. And whether I live or die on any particular day, it's okay because the resurrection is coming. Jesus, we're going to discover, is the first fruits, but there's more after that. Jesus in his resurrection was the first display of God's resurrecting power. You say, well, wait a minute, there were some other resurrections. In fact, Jesus even uh, caused that little girl to come back to life. And the, the uh, young man there who was the son of the widow in the city of Nain. He, and Lazarus, don't forget about Lazarus. Well, yes, that's true. But those all died again. Jesus, in his resurrection, will never die. In fact, he ascended in invisible form. He ascended to, to glory once again. And the angels standing there said, well, guess what? He's coming back just like you've seen him go. He is unique in his resurrection. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. But the resurrection was not an unknown quantity to the ancient Israelites. Not at all. I'm going to just look at three of the most prominent passages in the Old Testament. One of them is in Job chapter 19. Now you can follow me along. You're welcome to do that. Job 19. Or if you want to cut to the end, go to 1 Corinthians 15 and I'll join you there in just a few minutes. Job 19. Job, of course, is suffering tremendously and uh, his friends are not being very helpful to him. And in chapter 19, Job says this, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. <coughs> they, they are, Job. You can rest easy on that. They are inscribed in a book. <laughs> that they were engraved on a rock with an iron stylus and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Psalm 16, King David is writing. He's writing about some of his own experiences, but as a prophet of God, King David is also including some material here about the, the greater son of David, the Messiah. Psalm 16, he says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Now here's where David becomes a prophet. He says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David was see, I'll, I'll finish it. He says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David knew that one day he would die. He also knew that he was going to be with God. He also knew that one day he would, he would have a flesh body again. 
and that he would be there in God's presence, and there would be joy and gladness and pleasures forevermore. But he also realized that he would, God would not allow his Holy One even to undergo corruption. Peter, when he was referring to this in his great sermon on Pentecost, says, you know, David died. And over there is his tomb. He's buried. David saw corruption, didn't he? That's what the word means. It means the decay of the human body. He saw corruption. Jesus never did. Jesus rose from the dead. And his body did not decay. We'll talk more about that in a little while when we get to the nature of the resurrection. There's also uh, that great passage in Daniel chapter 12. Crystal clear, Daniel 12. God is giving Daniel a, a vision of what's going to happen in the future. He says, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. God is not revealing all the fine details to Daniel. He's giving him the broad sweep of what's going to be happening in the future. He goes on and says, And many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The resurrection was well known in the Old Testament. That was the hope of the believers in the Old Testament, that there would be a resurrection. <clears throat> but that's not the only evidence we have of resurrection in Scripture. Jesus himself spoke of it three times, his own resurrection, three times during the course of his ministry. In Mark chapter 8, he says this, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It was the theme of Jesus' own message. Mark chapter 9. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They were there on a journey, walking from place to place, and Jesus is talking about what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And you can understand, I mean, if we'd been there, it'd have been the same thing with us. It went shred over top. They, they just, they couldn't grasp it. They couldn't get a hold of it. In Mark chapter 10, it says, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going before them, and they were all amazed. And as they followed him, they were afraid. Well, we can understand that. Jesus had been talking to them, hadn't he, about going up to Jerusalem and suffering and dying and so forth. And then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. Jesus is giving them more details. Why? So that when it happens, when it unfolds in front of them, just as Jesus said, that they should in their minds think, oh, well, this is what Jesus said. And they would remember the last thing that he said about it. 
and the third day he will rise again. But did they remember? No. No, and I don't know. I mean, to see what happened to Jesus, the violence that was perpetrated against him, the lies, the hatred, all the stuff that was just poured out on Jesus, I'm sure that they were just emotionally overloaded with everything that was going on. I'm not surprised that they did not remember the last things that Jesus said in that little scenario as he revealed what was going to happen. He said, I will rise again. But boy, it sure didn't look like it. How would ever something like that be possible? They, they I'm sure, forgot Lazarus. They forgot the young man who was the son of the widow at Nain. They forgot the young girl who was Jairus' daughter. They forgot all those things. And, and I get that. Because the resurrection is not something that happens every day, is it? I mean, what do we have really to compare it to? Life from the dead. Life from no life. We, we, we don't have anything to compare it to. It's the focal point, though, of all four Gospels. As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the resurrection is the climax point of each of the Gospel accounts. Now, each Gospel goes on and tells a little bit more about things after the resurrection, but really, it's the resurrection that is the pinnacle. It is the thing that all of the Gospel is moving to because it is the resurrection that demonstrates that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God himself. Peter preached it. We already I mentioned Acts chapter 2. Uh, we looked at uh, chapter 3 there and uh, chapter 4 also. He mentions it again in chapter 5. He's giving his testimony before Felix, the Roman governor. He says, uh, we ought to obey God rather than men, the God of our fathers who raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Oh, excuse me, that was, uh, that was before the Sanhedrin. Uh, he's, he's, he says, listen, you murdered Jesus, but God raised him up. Peter was constantly preaching the resurrection. And then to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter, as he's recounting all the things that Jesus had done and said, uh, in, in preaching that message there to the household of Cornelius, he says, and they killed him by hanging him on a tree. Him, God raised up on the third day. The climax of the, of the sermon is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was proclaimed by Paul as having been raised. In Acts chapter 13, they're in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And uh, Paul is recounting the events there in Jerusalem as they unfolded. And he says they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Constant repetition of that most important theme. Now join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, <coughs> Paul does a lot with the resurrection. I wish we had time to look at all of it. In Acts chapter 13, 17, 23, 24, all over the place. And that's just in his sermons. And 
then you also have what Paul writes about the resurrection in all of his letters. 1 Corinthians 15 is without a doubt the greatest <coughs> treatise on the resurrection that we find in the scripture. Paul, if you remember, was trained as a Pharisee. He was well acquainted with the law. He was well acquainted with logical thought. He was an extremely intelligent man. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out the resurrection just like a lawyer might lay out a, a legal brief. He considers all sides of the issue, even, well, what happens if there is no resurrection? And Paul looks at it. Let's follow along with what he says. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, if you've accepted what I've taught, you really believe it, and you're not just fooling around, pretending, you have confidence, you're saved, because here's the truth of it, and he's going to expand it. Now, it is certainly possible that some didn't believe. It's possible that some of you here in this room today don't believe. I mean, resurrection, come on, life from the dead, that seems a little odd, doesn't it? That, that, you're asking me to believe too much. Well, no, I'm not, but it's your choice. Paul goes on, and these are the memory verses we've been working on. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the whole package. Jesus came, he was born of a virgin, he was a 100% human, 100% God, sinless life, offered himself as the Lamb of God, died on the cross for our sins. He was our substitute. All of that's included there. That he was buried. You don't bury people that are still alive. You bury people that are dead. The burial is the, the public testimony that Jesus was really dead. Now it wasn't enough, I guess, that you know he got pierced in the side with the sword and blood and water ran out and all the things that happened to Jesus there at the cross. Let's just add one more so we can eliminate any possibility of question and doubt. He's going to be buried. And so he was wrapped in burial cloths and spices were added and so forth and he was put in the tomb and the stone was rolled over the tomb and they put the Roman seal on the stone. He was dead. Dead, dead, dead. You can't get any deader than what Jesus was. He was dead. And then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This was not plan B. This is not God desperately trying to come up with some way to save humanity. No, this was the plan of salvation before the world was even formed. This is what God intended from, the, from eternity past. That His Son, Jesus Christ, would be the Savior of fallen humanity. And it's all recorded for us in the Scriptures. I read some in the Old Testament. I didn't read them all. This was not something that was an accident. This is the eternal plan and purpose of Almighty God. Let's keep going. 
And they were seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. That's a technical term. It was the title of the group of Twelve Guys that Followed Jesus. Now, obviously, Judas is dead. He's out of the picture here because he was the betrayer and he committed suicide. But the group was still called the Twelve. And in fact, we read in the early chapter of Acts there, the first chapter, that they, they chose another one from among them to be associated with the Twelve so that they'd be Twelve people again. That was the title of that inner group of Jesus' disciples. So after that, he was seen of over 500, over 500 brethren at once, all at the same time. Now, you might say that now ah, Peter just sort of hallucinated there on Easter Sunday and just thought he saw Jesus. You might say, well, you know, Mary Magdalene just... She just imagined she saw him. This is wishful thinking, you know. Sometimes we sort of imagine something and maybe it seems very real to us. But you get five, over 500 people to imagine the same thing at the same time, in the same place, in the same way. It's impossible. It doesn't work. And again, Peter, or Paul, is, is writing, and, and God, through that writing, is just piling evidence on top of evidence of the reality of the resurrection. Paul even goes on and says, of, whom, of those 500, of whom the greater part remained in the present, but some have fallen asleep. It had been 23 years between when Paul writes 1 Corinthians and when Jesus actually rose from the dead. 23 years had passed. So you're not surprised that of that group of over 500, there might have been a few that had died. That's not surprising. I mean, people do die all the time. And yet, the vast majority were still alive. What's implied here? Well, you can go ask them yourself. You can go check it out. They're still available. They can still give testimony. They can still witness to what they saw on that day. A resurrected Jesus Christ. He goes on, verse 7, After that he was seen by James. That was the half-brother of Jesus, one of the sons of Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born. And then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Remember, Paul was not associated with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul was probably in Jerusalem, probably studying at the feet of Gamaliel, but he was certainly not a follower of Jesus. In fact, Saul, that was his name originally, became a tremendous persecutor of the people who followed the way. It was called the people of the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They weren't called Christians, Christ followers, until later on. But Paul, Saul, excuse me, decides he's going to really show his zeal for God, and he's going to stamp out these heretics, these Christian people, these believers of the way. So he's even on his way to Damascus, which is a town outside of Israel. He's going to grab the Christians there, bring them back to Jerusalem. They're going to be tried. They're going to be put to death. He's going to stamp this thing out. And guess what happened? God met him on the road to Damascus. And Paul became the greatest missionary, the greatest theologian, the greatest preacher the church has ever known. From one who persecuted the church 
to one who helped establish the church. You know, God still changes lives. Maybe you're here today and you think, well, I, I've done too much. God's never going to be able to forgive me. Listen, if He can forgive Paul, He can forgive you. That's not a problem. Well, let's keep going. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Jump down here with me to verse 12. Here's where Paul puts on the other guy's hat. He's He's the lawyer. He's looking at this thing now from the other perspective. He's given all the evidence for, well, he's given a lot of evidence, not all the evidence of the resurrection, but he's given a lot of evidence to substantiate the reality of the resurrection. But then he says this, verse 12, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of, among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently there were some there in the church at Corinth who heard the message of the resurrection and they said, oh, no, that, there's, there's no resurrection. I mean, it's, it's not, he didn't come back in a body or anything like that. They were denying the message, the central message. So Paul grabs onto that and he says, let's think about that for a minute. Let's follow it through logically. Here it is, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. And we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise if in fact the dead do not rise. In other words, we're lying about God. We're going around saying that God raised Jesus from the dead, but if there is no resurrection, then we're telling a lie about God. He goes on. Verse 16. Or 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You know, it amazes me constantly. I, I run into people that say they're Christians, they go to a church, and they don't, they don't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. They don't believe that you have to confess your sin to be saved. They think everybody's going to get into heaven anyway, and it doesn't really matter. They don't believe that the resurrection was, was a reality. They don't think Jesus is coming back to this earth physically. Oh, people might go to be with him, but he's not coming back. And I'm thinking, why do you, if you deny everything that the scripture says, why do you even call yourself a Christian? Why, why do you even stand there and try to... If you don't believe this, just be honest enough to walk away from it and say, I don't believe. Don't try to wear the Christian hat and deny it at the same time. Your faith is futile if Christ is not risen from the dead. And, look at this, you are still in your sins. And you are in deep, deep trouble before a holy and righteous God. Because Jesus Christ is put forward in this message as being the only way to salvation. Jesus Himself said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So if you're trying to get to heaven, if you're trying to get to God, if you're trying to get wherever you think you're trying to get, Without Jesus Christ, you're lost. You're, you're not going to make it. You say, boy, that sounds like a really exclusive and restrictive program. 
You're right, it is, but it's open to everybody. The, the gift of salvation is open to anybody and everybody. You just have to come God's way. You can't come any other way. God's willing to save if you come to Him on His terms. Otherwise, there's no salvation. And he goes on, he, he says, you know, of all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All, all, the, all the people there in Corinth that put their trust in Jesus and have since died in these intervening years, well, they don't have any hope if there is no resurrection. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now he turns the corner. Having looked at the illogic of disbelief, now he turns the corner and he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, that's Adam. You remember Genesis chapter 3? God had told Adam, you can eat from every fruit of the tree of the garden, except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat that fruit in that day, you will die. Now, Adam didn't physically die, but he died spiritually. The core concept of death is not the cessation of existence, it's separation. Immediately, Adam was separated from his Creator. Immediately. A few moments later, God drove him out of the garden and set an angel there at the entrance and prevented him from coming back. Immediately he was separated from God. And shame and guilt and all that stuff came in. Immediately. Now it was about 930 years till finally the physical body of Adam quit working and he dropped into a hole in the ground. You and I come into this world and we are separated from God. We are dead spiritually. Oh, we're functioning, we're walking around, we're doing stuff, we're talking, we're learning, we're all involved in life. But apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead spiritually. You are separated from God. And when you drop into that hole in the ground, you will be permanently separated from God forever and ever. But Jesus comes so that you and I might have life. So that we might have new life. So that we could be born again, spiritually. So that we wouldn't have to worry about what happens to us when our soul, our, our immaterial, <coughs> leaves this material body. We don't have to worry because we're going to be with Christ. Christ is risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. By a man came death, that's Adam. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed, Jesus in his perfect humanity did not fail. He was obedient to the Father, even to death on the cross. Adam stands as the representative head of the human race. And the representative head of the human race sinned and rebelled against God. And the whole of humanity 
has followed in that rebellion. Jesus Christ stands as the federal head, the representative head of a new race, a redeemed people, a redeemed people coming out from all of humanity, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of social standing, regardless of education, regardless of anything. The only difference is the people here belong to Jesus through faith in what He did on the cross on their behalf. As in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. And then he says, but each in his own order. Now, if you want to find out what that's all about, you have to come next week. Because we're going to look at what that means. And the resurrection and the rapture and all the things that take place there. But, maybe you're like the Corinthians and you want to know what kind of body we're going to get. Let's look at verse 35. Christ is the first fruits. What kind of body am I going to have? Am I going to recognize people? You going to recognize your believing loved ones who died? Absolutely. And I think you'll see that as we proceed here. Someone will say, what kind of, or how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body did they come? Oh, foolish one. <laughs> what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. And this is said long before anybody invented a telescope or a spectrometer or anything that they could figure this out. For star differs from star in glory. Go ask your astronomers to identify stars based on their light pattern and they'll be able to do it because each one's different. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing what our Creator has done? Is the word reliable? Yeah. Now Paul's not writing a scientific text, but what he says is scientifically accurate. You can trust this word. Paul goes on, so also is the resurrection of the dead. What's he, what's he getting to here? He said, well, when it comes to this physical life, there are all kinds of bodies. By the way, there's two different words here used in the King James Version, or the New American Standard and the King James Standard. They get it right. They're doing a good job. There's a body which is, can be referred to anything. It, it's, it's just like a container, <laughs> sort of. And then there's flesh, okay? And the distinction is made in the translation here. I guess I should say that the translators did a good job. In this world, there are all kinds of objects, and each one has its own purpose and its own value. And there's also a difference even among flesh and blood creatures, you and me and animals and so forth. There's a difference. We didn't evolve one from another. 
There's a distinct difference. And that distinct difference is not only obvious to the physical eye, but it can be demonstrated genetically as well. And again, God's not writing a textbook, but what he says is scientifically accurate. There's a difference in all of living creation. And they're all suited to their purpose. Now, in this life, we have bodies that are suited to this life. He's going to go on and say, in the new life, in the new creation, in the resurrection, we're going to have a body that's going to be suited for that life. Notice what he says. Uh, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. You know, it decays. By the way, it's, it's not just the physical decay after death. Some of us were out picking up trash yesterday, and our backs are a little sore. You know, uh, they didn't used to be. I don't remember 40 years ago that I ever had a sore back. But the body's decaying, isn't it? Even while we're living, we're experiencing decay. So one body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. In other words, it's not going to wear out, it's not going to hurt, it's not going to ache, it's not going to have all the problems that these bodies now have. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. It will be a body that is absolutely perfectly suited for eternal life. And it's going to be patterned after the Lord's own body. Paul writes to the Colossians and he says that we're going to be raised like unto his glorious body. Think about Jesus and, and his resurrection body for a minute. Jesus appeared in the midst of the disciples there in the locked upper room, and he apparently didn't walk through the door. He just appeared. I wonder what that says for you and me. If we want to go somewhere in the new heavens and new earth, can we travel at the speed of thought? Are we going to be restricted by physical objects? I don't know. And yet, though Jesus suddenly appeared in a locked room, He had a physical, touchable, viewable body. He wasn't some kind of ooh spirit, you know. He, he was a person. He was a physical being. Jesus was able to talk he was able to hear, he was able to see, he was able to be seen, he was able to communicate. All the stuff that a person does. He was able to eat. All the stuff that a person does. That's the pattern that our resurrection body will be modeled after. To be like Christ. 
but one that is fundamentally changed so that now it's prepared, it's a body suitable for eternity. Suitable for eternity. Oh, beloved, what an amazing, what an amazing thing. Going down to verse 46, uh, 45, I'm sorry, 45. I'm adjusting to new glasses. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus gives eternal life. The best that you can get from Adam, you know, your great, 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 times a hundred, whatever, grandfather back there. The best that he can give you is physical life and then death. That's it. But Jesus, Jesus gives eternal life. Verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're going to talk more about this next week, and I hope you'll come back. But here's the blessed hope for us as Christians. To be alive when Jesus Christ returns. We're going to miss death. We're going to be transformed immediately into that spiritual body that's very real. It's not a ghost. It's a very real body. But it's a body fundamentally different and yet fundamentally the same. And it is fitted for eternity. And we shall go to be with Jesus Christ. That's the centrality of the resurrection. Everything, everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you are here this morning and you know Christ as your Savior, you have a lot to look forward to. You have, you have everything to look forward to. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that does not have to continue. You can, by simple faith in Him, acknowledge that He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He is the one who rose from the dead by the power of God. That He is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. And you can ask God to forgive you of your sin and make you His child, and He will do that. It's as simple as believing that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I would encourage you, beloved, if you're here this morning and you don't know Him as your Savior, don't leave this place without making that decision. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. It is filled with amazing things and so many times we read through it and we just don't stop and think about it. But every word you have shared in your word 
is absolutely true. We can base our lives upon it. And we can understand and know that we have eternal life through faith in Jesus. Lord, strengthen the faith of those who are believers today. Help us to get our eyes off of this world and all of its distractions and fears. Get our eyes on Christ. And help us, Father, to live each day in light of the resurrection. And for those, Father, who may not know Jesus as their Savior, I pray that your Spirit will do his holy work in convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment. That they will turn to you for the forgiveness of sin and for the gift of eternal life. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Am